1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu,
0: and I'm Alex Diamond,
1: and we are the hosts of this special series.
0: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
1: This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
0: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
1: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing
0: from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: And on that note,
0: let's begin. We are honored to be joined today by Dr. Deborah Thomas, who is professor of anthropology and the director of the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on violence, race, cultural politics, and the afterlives of imperialism in Jamaica. And while listing off her publications, awards, and appointments would take up uh, literally half of the podcast, we get an idea of her scholarly versatility from her most recent project called Tivoli Stories. This project takes off from the 2010 police and military incursion into a West Kingston community in search of a notorious drug trafficker and community dawn, an incursion that left at least 75 people dead. Um, And it includes a 2019 book titled Political Life in the Wake of the Plantation, Entanglement, Witnessing, Repair, a museum installation called Bearing Witness, Four Days in West Kingston, that was until very recently housed at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And finally, a 2018 documentary titled Four Days in May. Uh, Deborah, we're overwhelmed just from a quick stab at mentioning some of your projects, uh, but we are very excited to have you on.
2: Well, Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, So to begin, we often ask about how our guests got into ethnography and your newest book actually includes a reflection, uh, which is really interesting on your background, uh, how your personal background led to the project, um, which includes both your personal history with Jamaica, as well as your experience as a dancer, um, which you describe sort of as a, a precursor to, to both doing ethnographic fieldwork uh, and an interest in questions of sovereignty. Um, so maybe you can explain for us, what, what is the personal journey that led you to being an ethnographer and also to this, uh, this latest Tivoli Stories project?
2: Hmm. Okay, sure. Um, you know, I often uh, tell my students that I'm sort of I don't know, an accidental anthropologist, I guess. Um, I had a very circuitous route uh, to the field, uh, having come to it from, as you mentioned, being a professional dancer. I performed with the New York-based company Urban Bushwomen, Women um, for many years. And uh, we were on the road about 35 weeks out of the year. And before I started dancing with them, I had actually spent a year in Salvador Bahia in Brazil, dancing there with different um different companies that sort of spanned the range from what we would call danza dance folklorico, more folkloric dance, and, uh, you know, more modern type concert dance. But in each instance, they were pulling from uh, the research that they themselves were doing or the practice they themselves had within Condomble, which is the sort of Yoruba derived religious practice, worship practice, Social practice um, that is so predominant in that area of Brazil. And so they were pulling the kind of dance movements, the rhythms, the music, sometimes the songs into a modern dance vocabulary and into the concert stage. And that was something that, in a way, we were also doing with urban bush women. We were drawing from the histories, our stories of um, African-Americans and African-descended people throughout the diaspora in order to bring to light um, stories that hadn't been told, but also um, political histories, uh, social histories that were important to us. And um, I mentioned that we were on the road about 35 weeks out of the year, but we also started this kind of program of community engagement while I was in the company. This is the early nineties now. Um, and that's when we would go at the invitation of a community or of a grassroots organization in a community and work with different community based organizations on whatever they define for themselves as a project using dance and music and sort of the tools that were available to us as a means to create other forms of social transformation, whether that's consciousness raising or skills building or, um, you know, other things like that, using a kind of popular education model or theater of the oppressed model. Um, so we worked in a welfare rights organization, a teen pregnancy prevention center. This is in New Orleans for our first community engagement project. We worked with a basketball team that wanted math tutoring. I worked with a puppet um, puppet theater workshop um, in the Ninth Ward that wanted to host a block party and invite their rivals and have it come off without incident. So we were really kind of interested in, in, in the ways that artists can be part of broader social change efforts. And of course, there's a long history of that, but, you know, it really uh, activated me and I loved it. And I realized that what I had been doing all along as a dancer, both with the company and prior to Urban Bush Women, was entering communities through dance and um, working with people, collaborating with people, learning from people in an embodied participatory way. So um, I thought, well, you know, we're doing this at a very grassroots level. Surely, you know, people have tried to enact this kind of transformation at a higher level of scale. And in Jamaica, dancers were very central to the anti-colonial project uh, in terms of the arts, but also in a, in a more kind of psychological nationalist project of really trying to get people to value a heritage that had been denigrated throughout the period of British colonial rule. So I thought, well, you know, I could do some independent research into how that worked in Jamaica, and then maybe also look at it in some other places throughout the diaspora, And my father suggested that if I did that within the context of a university, maybe somebody would pay me. So I started doing some research into graduate school. And by a long kind of, um, you know, stream of events, I ended up in a Latin American and Caribbean studies master's program. And my first course was an anthropology course Called Transnational Processes with Professor Connie Sutton, that was about sort of globalization and transformations in capitalism with neoliberalism and about migration. And she herself studied West Indian migration to New York. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that somebody could do research on the things that were life processes for me, you know, and I thought, oh my gosh there are people who do this you know i must be in the right place you know so i found out you know very quickly that there was a a kind of nest for me you know that had a methodology that sounded like what i had been doing and that i could learn you know from that disciplinary space in order to do something that felt um, you know kind of natural to me and that's something I'd already been doing and of course there was a long line of um, black women dancers or artists who also became anthropologists with Zora Neale Hurston and Catherine Dunham and Eslanda Robeson and so I felt like there was a space for me um, and so that's kind of what led me to anthropology and what led me to ethnography. All along in graduate school, I thought I was, you know, going to get my degree and then open a community arts center in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, but eventually, you know, one thing led to another. I saw a job ad that seemed to really speak to me and that mm-hmm. tracked me into the academy. And so here we are.
1: Wow. Um, thank you. That was such a rich... Um, you know portrayal of your life coming to ethnography and I also wanted to add that I think you've created a space for a lot of um, anthropologists and sociologists to think differently about about research and to you know really embrace the experimentation that uh, research holds within it so thank you. Oh,
2: well, you know, finally, I try to get back to my community arts center in a way, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The community
2: is the community of, um, you know, faculty, scholar artists, our students who want to bring their creative practice into a research methodology. And, you know, many, many people in my generation, not me particularly, but others I know felt that they had to hide those dimensions of themselves Um, and that people wouldn't take them seriously as an academic if they knew they were also making films or they were also doing theater. And, you know, I think that's changing more generally, but definitely we have wanted to create a space, you know, within an institutional academic setting where that kind of practice is valued and where we actually understand that it transforms the ways that we produce knowledge. And it, really changes our relationships with our students and and it should also change the position of the university you know vis-a-vis the communities in which it sits but also um, the communities through which our research circulates so we're, we're sort of um on a stealth mission to to transform uh the academy from the bottom up through an
0: arts-based practice uh- yeah, that's something that we really admire about your work. Um, and before talking about that more, I wanted to get an idea. You're, you mentioned your father. Um, your father is Jamaican, right? You you write in sort of a really interesting way about your personal connection to to Jamaica as as maybe one of those communities that you're speaking to, um, so that your work is not just addressed to to like American academia, for example. Um, but can you say more about that that personal history with Jamaica?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my father is Jamaican. We spent my early childhood there, and um, I, you know, I I guess one could say, and maybe this is true of most scholars. You know, you spend a long time and many books and articles and, you know, whatever other kinds of research products that you're into. Um, and it all kind of comes back around to the same question ultimately. So I think for me, in figuring out sort of my understanding of, of the world entails figuring out my understanding to my own complex histories of um, you know, moving and mixture and all of that. But but also then, um, you know, how, where, when, and why we and we can refer to various different kinds of communities. And I think we have to be very specific when we use that term. But in this case, the we that I'm thinking is, um, you know, the communities in which I tend to circulate, both in Jamaica and here, you know, in which we try to create spaces of freedom for ourselves, you know, those, the questions that animate the book, this most recent book are, you know, what, what does sovereignty feel like? But in a way, those are questions that also animated, you know, my previous two books, you know, like, what is it that artists bring to the process of Um, sovereignty as a collective as individuals you know how how do we feel free and how do we get free you know and I think that has taken on a variety of dimensions and I've been sort of interrogating it in different kinds of spaces but I do sort of feel like I keep coming back to that same question and you know find certain kinds of answers with each project, but always am unsatisfied um, at the end, you know, and feel like, okay, no, I haven't quite gotten it yet. So let me, let me look again from another angle or let me try this new other tack or let me see what investigating this particular event, you know, what directions that maybe takes me in to understand this better and to, to try to account more fully for both the conditions of degradation and oppression and the conditions of life, you know, and liberation and, and you know, to try to, to feel that again. I mean, I often say that when you're on stage or as a dancer or in any kind of space dancing, if you've ever felt what it feels like to truly give yourself over to the music, and to the other bodies that are in movement with you, that is a feeling of of freedom that I can't even articulate in words, you know? And once you've felt that once, it's like a drug, you know? You always want to feel that again. And you're always looking for ways to create the conditions to feel that again and to bring other people to that feeling as well with you. So I think in some ways it's like I'm always trying to find to find that feeling, you know, in myself <clears throat> and in others, and to, you know, to to understand why it's so difficult to find that feeling sometimes as well, and and how entangled those difficulties are. I mean, the book, this most recent book, takes as its um, starting point the Tivoli incursion, or what is now called the Tivoli incursion, from May 2010, and it moves backwards in time. To to sort of think through how it was that we got to a space, you know, what connections institutionally, what connections geopolitically, what movements that people were trying to pull together that got demolished in one way or another, you know, how do we get to a point where the state can enter a community um, and you know kill civilians looking for? one criminal to extradite to the United States. Um So I think it's a kind of constant tacking back to those same questions that have to do with the violence that is inflicted, you know, in colonial societies, in the new world sort of dispensation through processes of dispossession and racial marginalization um, and the ways that, you know, we all try to, Create something else uh, in those spaces of violence that will help us feel
1: free. Yeah. Again, I mean, um, I couldn't stop just like jotting down notes as you were speaking. This is uh, just—I <laughs> feel like I'm attending a beautiful lecture that's both uplifting and uh, deeply, deeply insightful. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, we we, uh, we know that you've made to extremely brilliant documentary films, Four Days in May and Bad Friday. And I guess I was curious to know, um, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? What was, I guess, the moment when you realized that this might be an interesting way to, I guess, explore questions uh, worth exploring?
2: Yeah, yeah, it wasn't my training, (laughs) Um, you know, having done, obviously, dance and theater, Um, I was a semiotics major at Brown, so I I knew film theory, but the production work that I did was all in dance and theater rather than in film, like some of my fellow students during that time. Um, My husband, John Jackson, is a filmmaker. And as we were, as I was doing the research with um, my collaborator, Junior Gabu Wedderburn, on uh, the Coral Gardens incident, which was A moment in 1963 when the state really came down on Rastafari throughout Jamaica, but most concentrated in Western Jamaica because of a land dispute um, in which a policeman uh, eventually had been killed. And the prime minister at that time is said to have um, said publicly, you know, bring in all Rasta dead or alive. And he enlisted uh, the support of communities to round up Rastafari living in their midst and to bring them to police stations. And you know, this is how hundreds upon hundreds of Rastafari throughout Western Jamaica were locked up and detained and um, in some cases really tortured by the police and the military in 1963, many times without even knowing why, because they hadn't been near the origin of you know, the, the spark that led to this this roundup. Anyway, we were investigating this and um, meeting elders who uh, had experienced, had gone through that experience and who had been sort of telling their stories at this public commemoration that um, the Rastafari Coral Gardens Commission organized annually and uh, we were talking with one of the elders um, with whom we had become friendly and had heard his story several times. And And I asked him um, if he wouldn't mind, you know, one day, when next we were to get together, if he would tell his story again as we moved through the landscape. So as we walked, you know, kind of retracing his footsteps on that day in a way and thinking that perhaps other things might come up if we were actually in the spaces where he was, you know, tied to his neighbor, where he was thrown in the back of the truck, where the, you know, friends and neighbors were giving him up to the police, um, these kinds of things. And, And he said, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to do that, but wouldn't it be better to do that? on camera and i was like uh of course it was <laughs> you know so um john came down with us the next trip uh we took and we started doing some filming and i sort of got a crash course in filmmaking as did junior and you know he is a musician and sort of a genius with sound anyway so Through the process of tracking elders down and creating the film *Bad Friday*, we sort of were learning the whole time, which um, I'm, you know, quite sure is very evident from the production values of that film. But uh, you know, nevertheless, kind of gives it also its sort of guerrilla grassroots quality that I think people around the world uh, interested in Rastafari and interested in pan-africanism and Rastafari themselves in different places across uh, across the globe have really come to appreciate you know they were definitely our primary audience you know as we were putting that film together which helped us to make the decisions about editing and how we wanted to present narratives and how we didn't want there to be a kind of Omniscient, oh, sorry, omniscient narrator who would put all the pieces together and correct people's mistakes and direct viewers along. You know, we wanted the the incommensurate pieces of it to kind of linger, you know, and just allow viewers to focus on the narratives. Um, and I think, you know, that as many things having to do with Rastafari, um, you know how they how they circulate um, is that you know that material moves very quickly into the kind of underground spheres in which it's supposed to move, right? So um, the one of the elders with whom we were working, um, you know, was in the u s uh, on a trip and you know, called me from Brooklyn from Flatbush Avenue and said, you know he was seeing the 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 film had been, you know, bootlegged and seeing the film in what we call bend down plazas you know people were vending it um you know on the street and we all kind of laughed and said great you know like that's exactly the mission you know to get to get this story out and you know like the idea of copyright has no meaning in relation to that film, really you know except in so far as we do have permissions from you know everybody who's in it and all of that kind of stuff but You know, it was not our intent to to make money off of that film. Whatever money was made was, you know, given back to the community through the Rastafari Coral Gardens Committee. Um, But you know that that film, that's an incident that was, you know, over fifty years ago, and um, Rastafari has a very different position in relation to the Jamaican nation state today, and of course globally. As well, so you know, people have moved on, and now they enjoy learning more about this history because one can tell a more triumphalist story about Rastafari now and their position on the global stage, and Jamaica's position on the global stage as a result of Rastafari and reggae music, really. And I think the Tivoli project is, uh, you know, infinitely more complicated. You know, there's there's not a clear-cut denouement like that. Um, it is uh, addressing problems and processes that are ongoing in terms of the forms of political partisan, partisanship, the relationships between the legitimate political system and a kind of informal organization of power and authority as occurs in what's called garrison communities uh the vying for power among various groups within these communities you know these forms of violence are you know are ongoing and the kinds of ideas that people have about those living in places like Tivoli Gardens also are ongoing and so our mission with that particular film was was different you know it 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 has been a kind of mission to open up space for people to really hear narratives of what transpired during the state of emergency, of what people experienced when the police and military were coming into their community, going door to door, taking out all of the men you know, taking them on these long odysseys if they lived, ending up at the national stadium the national arena and really hearing about what it was like, you know, and I think um, that has opened many people's eyes in Jamaica, you know, who have seen it and has created the possibility for, I think, really rich conversations about the histories of political violence, the legacies of imperialism and slavery um, the kinds of trauma that um, linger from, you know, the event of the incursion, but you know, other similar events over time. The ways people who were maybe eight, nine, ten at the time of the incursion and who are now coming of age ten years later, how it affects their decision-making processes. You know, we've been able to sort of create these open spaces for conversation across party lines. And that's been, that's been our sort of mission, you know, with that film to use it as a catalyst for discussion and ultimately for discussion potentially about different ways of organizing our political life, you know, and our thinking about, um, political action in the world and it's hard because you know one always bumps up against you know the realities of ongoing um, rivalries and violence within some of the communities that were most affected in West Kingston you know by the by the incursion
0: it's it's an Im- important and and powerful work um, four days in May you um, and, you know, I think your, your book does a really good job of, of drawing sort of throughout history, uh, throughout the ways people experience uh, and feel state power, sort of the link between those two documentaries and those two moments of, of violence and, and state repression. Um, what I wanted to ask about is sort of between those two projects. Um, in terms of your own journey as a, as a researcher and filmmaker, there's there's a very direct link, um,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: Didn't didn't the second documentary, Four Days in May, come directly out of a screening for for Bad Friday?
2: Yeah, it did. Um, we were screening Bad Friday in New York at NYU and um, someone who is in the audience, Diane Bao, who is a community psychologist, um, approached me and we developed a relationship. And she at the time was working on um, a reggae opera and was really interested in using the arts uh, as a way to sort of deal with social issues and social problems in Jamaica. And she was still living in Jamaica at that time. She, she's in England um, now, but um You know, over time we just kept talking, and and so she sort of said that um, what she had liked about Bad Friday was the, the way the narratives were so central, and that we were led to just listen to what the experiences of these elders were. And she said, Don't you think something like that should be done about what happened in Tivoli? And I said, Yeah, I definitely think that would be great, you know. And she said, Well, don't you think that we could do that? I said, No, I I really don't, you know. You know, I mean, Bad Friday to me really worked because um, you know, Junior is a Ross and you know, was interested in the story in terms of his own understanding of the community. We had relationships with, um, you know, the people who had experienced um, the events of 1963. And, you know, I didn't know anybody in Tivoli. I didn't have any kind of project running. And Tivoli was a very closed community, you know, unless you directly had family or a reason to be there, there was no reason that you would go. And the kinds of popular dances and things that happened really happened sort of on the borders you know on the on the streets that were the border so I just felt like it was impossible and too close to the events to really you know drop in and say oh let's make a film together you know so I, I didn't think that that was going to be feasible but um, Deanne persisted and you know I really thank her for doing that now because you um, you know, if it weren't for her and her persistence, I'm pretty sure this project would not have um, developed and definitely would not have developed in the way that uh, it developed. And, you know, one thing led to another and uh, a friend put me in contact with the journalist from the New Yorker uh, and the New York times, um, Matt Schwartz, and he had done an expose on the incursion for the New Yorker. And in doing that, he had lived in the community for several months. So he gave us some contacts. Deanne was still living in Jamaica at the time. She went and saw people and sort of said, you know, do you want to do something? We don't know what that something is, but would you like to do something? Um, And they said, yes. So initially we just started out and said, okay, um, you know, we'll provide a platform for people to talk about loved ones they lost. Because at the time when we started, there hadn't been a list of the dead released as yet. And there hadn't been any kind of investigation. That came later in the Commission of Inquiry. Um, but to talk about, to name and talk about loved ones they lost, and also to talk about their personal experiences, um during the state of emergency. And that was it, you know, sort of very neutral. Community members had parameters, you know, for us, things we could and could not say, ways we could and could not probe, and things that if people accidentally said them in an interview, we should cut out, you know, because they're navigating these different power structures also within their own communities. So that's how we started out. And um on the anniversary of the events in was either 2012 or 2013 we hosted um a sacred healing drum circle brought some musicians together um at a a art space that then existed downtown it doesn't um anymore that was called rock tower that was um a space that was developed by an artist um, named Linda Braun and she opened the space to us to do this drum circle. And we just, we invited people from the community and from all over and had some, you know, fruit and beverages and, and a drum circle, you know, and it was, you know, people danced and, you know, it was meant to sort of open a kind of spiritual space of release for people who were, you know, still dealing with the effects of this very profound violence. Um, And then we just sort of kept recording people's narratives. And, uh, you know, during that time, I think we started envisioning uh, an installation. You know, we didn't think we could do a more traditional type documentary because we couldn't really do the investigation that that would require. We wouldn't have been the body to do it and, it wouldn't have been um, safe to do that either for us or the people with whom we were working. So we were kind of thinking about, um, you know, what if we pulled together different kinds of archives? You know, these narratives that we're recording, um, archival historical footage of the community. Matt had also given me all of the drone footage that he had gotten through his application to the Freedom of Information Act for materials from the u.s government related to the incursion so he had sent that to me um and other other ephemera you know people's funeral programs you know different things and so what if we put these different archives in a form in 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 relation you know in juxtaposition sort of what thoughts could we spark and what forms of interrogation could we ignite and how could we help people to think differently about this space, these people, this history, you know? And so that's, it was an installation that we envisioned first. And in fact, the installation was what was done first. Um, But part of the installation is a film triptych. And as we were putting that together, we would sit down, you know, with the people who we had been interviewing and show them clips and sort of ask for feedback, ask if they still felt comfortable with what they said, um, ask if there was anything they wanted us to take out, ask if they were comfortable with the direction we were moving in, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so uh, we kept going back and forth and doing that. And, and in seeing clips like that strung together, they started to ask about the film you know so they kept saying so when is the film going to be done you know and i'd say it's not a film it's an installation you know and they'd be like yeah whatever when is the film going to be done you know and so diane said well you know when we were driving out of the community one time she was like well you realize that now we have to make a film too and i was like yeah okay so so then we did that. And then showing the film around to various audiences outside of Jamaica, I started feeling less satisfied about the impact it was having um, affectively. You know, I felt like people who were unfamiliar with the visual landscape and unfamiliar with the events were sort of getting bogged down in the film with, you know, what is happening? Why is this happening? I don't understand what people are seeing or, you know, those kinds of things. And they weren't allowing it to sort of register affectively in the ways that we had meant it to. So um, I called Junior and said, I think we should also make something that's totally non-narrative and non-linear where people have to just give up on trying to understand what's happening and instead just engage it as a as a as something that is evoking a feeling, you know? And so that's how we created this shorter, or seven and a half minute um, piece. That you know, I think we show more to audiences internationally. And friends who have seen both versions of the film say that they feel the weight of the state more with the longer documentary, and they feel the creativity of the people more in the in the shorter film. And you know, I think that's um, I think that's great. You know, different forms or different I feel like every form sort of, or every audience asks for its form or every form defines its audience, or there's some relationship like that, that is iterative, you know? And so we've had to make this project in a variety of, of forms to speak to sort of the different audiences. And the book really was last, you know, on some level, because I wasn't, I didn't see it as a written project at all when we started out but then I kind of started writing about our method you know writing about what we were doing and one thing led to another and you know you go down the rabbit hole so that's right. what happened.
1: <laughs> so you know you just uh, mentioned that you had shown I guess if we can call them early drafts of the film with some of the movie's protagonists. Um, I was curious to know why you decided to do that. Um, Or was it a very conscious decision or uh, had you been thinking about this for a while?
2: Uh, No, absolutely. It was conscious. Um, You know, conditions can be dangerous and they can shift you know so i think we have sometimes a notion of consent you know vis-a-vis the institutional review boards in our universities that defines it you know in particular ways but i think in this kind of process in this kind of context you know one can never imagine that consent is eternal you know the situation is dynamic and people may regret having participated or might not feel great about having said something or, you know, things just change. So we thought it was important to sort of keep touching base, you know, and giving them kind of, um, you know, final decision about what can and cannot be included. And there were some things that we took out that, in my opinion, would have made a stronger statement um but would in fact have you know gotten somebody in trouble which obviously is not our intent you know the intent is to support their efforts to be human to get some kind of reparation from the state to get their stories across to a public that imagines them as always already criminal you know so we had to really be serious about our commitment to them, I think. And, you know, and that commitment is still ongoing, you know? Um, I mean, we're. I almost thought to recut the film after a couple of the initial screenings because one of the men, Sean, who's in the film, the first time we showed it, you know, a bunch of people came, including people who were in the film. And then, you know, we had this moderated discussion afterwards and he got up and to the mic and started retelling his story and after i heard him do that twice at two different screenings i realized that i had cut out the part of his story that to him was the most important because it was the thing he always put back in during a screening you know And so I thought, oh God, you know, maybe we should recut the film, you know, and put that back in and just thought about like, oh my God, all the labor that that would entail both in terms of, you know, the visual editing is, you know, not that deep, but the sound editing would have sort of going back to the drawing board with all of that would have been crazy onerous. So, you know, I thought, you know what, actually, I think it's better with him just always filling in that blank, you know, And he has literally done that at every screening we've done in Jamaica. You know, he comes, he gets a Pita. I haven't asked him to, he just does, you know? And so like, to me, that is again, sort of a dialogical element of the project as a whole that he then
0: is filling in the blanks and correcting my mistake. And can you tell us what, what that part is? that he's that he's always sharing
2: oh yeah 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 so uh i think we have in the film you know the police and the soldiers coming to his yard ordering everybody out of the all the men out of the houses to kneel down you know in front and um and then we cut to them all being taken away to clear sandbags from the roadblocks and all of this stuff but what he always reminds us is that he was holding his one-year-old son at the time and the soldier kept telling him to put, put the boy down. And he didn't want to because you know he, he wasn't walking yet. So it would have meant putting his boy down on the ground. And so obviously to him, that was the height of incivility you know, an insult that he should be asked to put his baby on the ground, you know, that the soldier was being inhuman in asking him to do that, you know, and by cutting that, you know, we cut, I think the thing that was key to the inhumanity of the security forces that they in fact could ask somebody to put their child in dirt.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting how those little details often end up being, you know, some of the most poignant elements in people's memory. Um, so one one thing that you you mentioned that the the book itself came second to making this film, and actually maybe even third to the, yeah, to the museum fourth, installation.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and that's that's really interesting because you know, and, and I say this as an ethnographer who's working on making a documentary that that you know comes out of my research. Now, it seems to me like it's a you're flipping sort of the the normal way when I when ethnographers do make films, you know, usually the research comes first and then the film comes out of that. Um, so I'm I'm curious, you know, your your book is uh, partly an historical exploration, um, but it also draws a lot on the experiences with the participants in the documentary film. And, you know, you're doing an ethnography through documentary filmmaking in a way, Um so I'm curious like what that looks like on, on like a day-to-day, you know, doing research and and how you think that affected the way people in the community related to you and, and even the final project itself.
2: Question. Um, well, I didn't think on some level, I didn't think I was doing research in that way that we sometimes come to think about research. Um, I thought I was doing a kind of collaborative participatory film in which I was also involving some of my students, you know, undergrads and grads. Um, they came down three undergrads, uh, from the design school. Um, and my colleague Ken Lum, who runs fine arts in the design school here came down one summer and, and they did photography workshops with, um, kind of youth group within the community while we were recording narratives. You know, for me we were doing a we were doing a project, you know, but not necessarily a research project. But of course, as a researcher, you know, I'm always sort of looking for that backstory. You know, why are things the way they are? What leads us to this moment? You know, of course we all knew and had a history of Tivoli and the various moments of violent eruptions and, you know, their location within the kind of political landscape nationally, and, you know, but, you know, we had to also do some probing to figure out how to contextualize or how we wanted to contextualize visually what was happening. So there was historical research going on simultaneously, both visual historical research and, you know, other kinds of archival work. Um, And I had been doing some actual research or, you know, what somebody would think of as an actual research project with this community in Clarendon that actually emerged out of the earlier film because we had met them through our work on um, Bad Friday. So, you know, in in terms of the book, it all ended up coming together um, in a certain way. And, you know, I, I knew I was going to write about the Tivoli project, but I didn't want to, I couldn't find the voice, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't find a voice that didn't irritate me, that didn't feel colonial, that didn't feel um, explanatory or transparent or, you know, and so I finally just decided to start writing about the process of making the film, you know, and what we were learning in that process and, what what those things that we were learning sparked in terms of broader theoretical questions or historical questions or questions of accountability and relationality and so that's kind of how that chapter developed because i didn't want to write something that explained what happened in tiboli you know in part because there's no real way to do that um that explanation will always be positioned in a particular kind of way. And I didn't want to take that expert positioning. Um, I wanted to understand it from these kind of multiple vantage points of people who were living it, you know, and not try to pull it all together neatly because that's impossible, you know? Um, So that's kind of how that emerged. So the day-to-day was really just the day-to-day of making a film and then sort of going back and say, oh, this reminds me of X thing that happened in 1970, whatever. Maybe we should, you know, go to our newspaper source and like look through some of those archives with her or we should go to gun court or, you know, we really need to probe more deeply into CIA destabilization of the Manly regime or you know, the support of Siaga during the 1980 elections or, you know, these different things just kept coming up that then produced the next moment of research. So I guess it was an iterative process that was really always quite tethered to the narratives, to the other visual material we were developing and to the sort of long-term ongoing relationships that, um, we were living, you know, with each other and with the film participants and with our students who also participated and were on learning journeys of their own, you know, not being necessarily familiar with anything having to do with Jamaican political history, you know, having to learn that on the fly.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, uh, so one of the central themes of your newest book is uh, Witnessing 2.0, which you describe as a moral practice that includes recognition, accountability, and potentially political transformation. So in concrete terms, I guess, what does this mean? What did What did it mean when you were doing um, research? Uh, and where can we see the commitment to witnessing 2.0 in your own work? Um, and I guess, how does it inform the many modes in which you present this latest project?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I think, a lot of people would feel like anthropology is a form of witnessing period, you know, and a form of witnessing that is perhaps different from, um, you know, the witnessing of, um, you know, tribunals and things, things that are established in order to deal with long-term historical violence or eventful historical violence. And for me, I guess it's really a practice of listening and, um, in some way, listening without obvious immediate intent. You know, so, um, you know, when we think about the kinds of witnessing or testimonials that are generated through these state driven reparative processes, there's an end in mind, right? So there are certain things people have to say. you have to write down in order to prove you know the points that you're trying to prove within that juridical process and that's super important i'm not saying that's not important but i um you know i think about this you know witnessing 2.0 is somewhat more open-ended as really being about the relationship rather than um some kind of easily identifiable institutional or objective outcome, you know, and something that can really create the conditions for attunement, you know, and, and hearing. And, you know, I think in both um, my artistic work and the scholarly work, um, you know, I feel like I'm a, a creator and assembler of archives you know, and the archives are maybe their narrative or performative or sonic or visual. And, you know, my practice of assembling them, which has itself been collaborative, you know, this wouldn't have happened without Deanne, it wouldn't have happened without Junior, you know, it wouldn't obviously have happened without our interlocutors, you know, in the community and beyond. But the practice of assembling them has really been geared toward trying to generate difficult, conversations about personhood, about politics, about violence, you know, in order to open these new spaces, you know, where people might be able to connect with each other across time and space. And in so connecting, rethinking their own relationships to these archives and to these events, and maybe also elaborating new foundations for sociality and for liberation. You know, and I think archiving in this kind of a way, in this way of thinking about it, is a kind of decolonizing practice, um, both in terms of our discipline, you know, which is, like many disciplines, so saturated within the processes and practices of colonization, but also in the kind of recognition relationship, you know, to create in that a different kind of, as I said before, attunement um, without the explicit intent of resolution—you know, just the commitment to still have a conversation—I think is what um, what I hope to generate.
0: So, sp- speaking of different ways of of witnessing, of representing people, of of expressing personhood, and also of sort of assembling um, a lot of different sort of pieces of this, this research and this amazing project. Um, the book and, and the documentary itself both include these beautiful posed, uh, portraits of the protagonists, um, who are all people who survived the, the violent incursion in Tivoli gardens, I believe. Um, and the photos, this, this seemed like, and you wrote a little bit about it. Uh, it seemed like a very specific choice, are against a plain white background. Um, so why why print yeah. these photos and and why present them in this way?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, partly we wanted to print portraits in order to give people something, you know. And it's Veron Baker who did the photographs, and he is a total genius in terms of um, making people feel at ease um, helping them to relax because it's a weird thing to come into a recording studio to you know tell your story to people you don't know well Um, you know and sometimes I would film while he was doing that um, just to sort of capture people's relaxing you know and their interactions with him and so we used some of those visuals actually in the shorter film um and you know that dynamic set up a way i think to see um to see people as not suffering victims you know not dejected suffering victims but as you know, people who are members of community, are members of families, who have jobs. You know, who have sort of rounded lives in the in the ways that um, you know they're not often portrayed to be. And and so we decided to shoot in the studio against a white background in order to remove the visual noise of um, you know the community that evokes for. Jamaican viewers anyway, a set of assumptions and ideologies that we were trying to use the film to destabilize. So, um, you know, we were trying to allow people the opportunity to really just focus on a face and on words and to therefore see people as human rather than, um, aligning them before their mouths even open with the kind of, you know, ghetto porn of, um, you know, the set of expectations that surround what that means, you know, and what this person's story is going to be. Um, so, you, so that's why we
0: did that, yeah. I was gonna say you, you contrast that with um, sort of the classical sort of ghetto porn images of suffering. Um, which you know I think is an important political choice that you're making, but also in the documentary there's a strong contrast with these extremely inhuman uh, drone images, where you can sort of it's there's no sound but you can sort of hear the drone itself moving and um, I mean was was that a was that also like a specific aesthetic choice because the the contrast is really striking
2: yeah the sound is actually um it's the vibration of the camera in the drone so the sound was already attached you know to the images and it's such a shrieking awful kind of noise and junior amplified it in different ways um that at first it was just like grating and shrill and awful you know But as I sort of sat and watched the hours and hours and hours of footage, it became kind of lulling, you know, in this weird way. And of course, you know, I'm looking at the drone footage to see if there are places where it will corroborate what people said happened to them, you know. And so it's quite astonishing, I think, the first time that you actually look at images from two miles away of soldiers marching down a street or particular people running, or a fire, or an explosion, or people on a roof, or, you know, it's amazing that you can see it so clearly. And I suppose people who have looked at drone footage much more extensively than I wouldn't have been surprised at all. But I was, and they were too, you know, and taking back that drone footage for them to look at, you know, they are seeing for the first time what they experienced sitting under somebody's dining room table. You know, it's quite shocking to them you know to to see this kind of birds-eye view of you know what they experienced as something unknown as something terrible and terrifying something that has been traumatic they didn't know what was going to happen the power was cut they couldn't eat they couldn't sleep they couldn't you know get up to go to the bathroom you know so suddenly they're seeing this from 2 miles above their community and sort of also trying to point out when something important happens, quote unquote, you know, and sort of seeing things going on and saying, wait, what was that? Go back, go back, you know, and sort of looking at it together was I think illuminating for both of us, you know, in that regard, because, you know, normally we think about drone footage in the ways that you were describing, you know, totally inhuman, um, surveillance, violent, you know, and in a way, people were trying to pick out parts of it where it was going to provide some proof for them, you know. Um, and and so were we, you know, when we were looking at it initially as well. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's, it just, I think that shows us constantly how complex these fields of vision are, you know, and how complex then our analyses of what these processes have to be. You know, we think we know the story of violence and, you know, we think we know the tools of violence, the tools that a state would use to inflict both eventful and ongoing violence on, you know, particular members of a population. But in fact, you know, there are always these little things that are going to twist our attention in a different kind of way and we have to follow them, you know, and sort of think about them. In these really complex ways.
1: Yeah. Thank you again. I'm uh, my the, the wheels in my mind just uh, can't stop turning. There's just so much to think about here. Um, thanks. Uh, on a on a different note, um, you're the director of the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. So what is experimental ethnography? How do you conceive it? And um, what new directions do you think are available for ethnographic work? Um, I'm asking this at a time where I guess fieldwork has been suspended for a lot of, uh, I assume, your students as well, uh, for a lot of us. And yeah, I guess I'm thinking about what are these new directions that are available for ethnographic work? How do we think about affordances um, during this time?
2: Mm. Yeah, that, that is a good question. And I see that the um, the um, associate editors of the Multimodal Anthropologies section of American Anthropologist, which I edited for four years, um, definitely attended to that problem, you know, in their kind of outgoing statement, which will uh, be in the March issue of the journal sort of thinking through the experimentations of digital practice that, you know, many people have been doing for a long time, but others are now forced to play catch up because of COVID restrictions, right? So on one hand, yes, I think that does open up um, certain kinds of spaces. Uh, you know, for for us, uh, you know, we are a group of faculty that span eight of Penn's 12 schools, including arts and sciences, obviously, and the Annenberg School for Communication and the Design School, but also the law school and the med school and the School of Social Policy and Practice and the Graduate School of Education, you know, where people are working in an ethnographic, in what, what, what I would understand to be an ethnographic manner, though they themselves don't necessarily call themselves ethnographers, um, meaning that they're working with people collaboratively in a participatory way in order to generate materials that are extra textual, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of that is film, and our students have been very captivated by film and anthropology, and film have a long history together, obviously, but also performance and, uh, you know, drawing, mapping, photography soundscapes um games you know other forms of experimental practice that are not typically regarded as part of a scholarly toolkit and we're trying to say that creative work is intellectual work it is a form of research people should be supported people who do this kind of work should be supported. Um, in terms of if they're students, they should be supported in learning the tools that they need to learn and also figuring out how to evaluate that kind of work. And if they're junior faculty, then we need to develop guidelines to help faculty working in this way have their work recognized as research and intellectual product, you know. Um, So, you know, we invite people to come to spend a semester teaching right now. We have Reggie Wilson, the choreographer and head of Fist and Heel Performance Group. Um, And we also have Jenny Cho, who's a filmmaker and an anthropologist based at USC. They're each teaching a class. I'm co-teaching with Reggie, a class called Kinesthetic Anthropology. Uh, They will both do some kind of final event. I think we're going to do a conference conference virtually, of course, and screening series with Jenny that tackles questions of indigeneity in China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And uh, for Reggie, we're going to screen a film that some of our graduate students, through their organization, which is called CAMRA, Collective for the Advancement of Multimodal Research Arts, um, they documented the process that he used to elaborate a sort of site specific performance series here in Philadelphia in 2019. So we're going to screen that film. Um, and we just try to support each other, you know, and to connect, um, with things going on around Philly and with like-minded institutions and organizations worldwide.
0: Well, that sounds amazing. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and I think I think for for our listeners and certainly for us, um, reading, watching, seeing your work, and particularly talking with you is is really inspiring in terms of thinking through different ways to to undertake ethnographic work and then also to to present our research. Um, so just a, a a last question in in that vein, um, what? what new projects can we hope to see from you in the new future and the near future? Excuse me. What are you working on?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the day before lockdown, I was coming back from Jamaica. Um, we started a new project on um, Ethiopian Zion Coptic church that was initiated by a man, Patrick White, who died this summer, unfortunately, and, um, again, a question of archiving. He had archival footage, you know, hundreds of hours of archival footage of this group that he was part of. So we had started um, probing into that, and that will become maybe a more traditional documentary. Uh, I've also been working on a project on um, what the effects have been, both developed development-wise, and kind of effectively of the intensified Chinese presence in Jamaica. Of course, throughout Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, but I'm interested in what's going on in Jamaica, both in terms of how it harkens back to earlier moments and how people are contending with what's going on now and the kind of big development projects that are being promised, but that may or may not materialized. And that'll be a more experimental sort of project as well sort of focusing on visual and sonic um evidence and and some interviewing and stuff like that so hopefully I, we will all be able to get a vaccine soon and i'll be able to travel and yeah and continue working on those projects
0: yeah those projects that um, sounds really exciting yeah. yeah they sound fascinating and and we we look forward to to seeing them as they develop um Deborah, we just want to thank you. This was a fascinating conversation Uh, for our listeners. I wanted to recommend um, for those who want to see more and learn more about your work, uh, the website TivoliStories.com, which includes information and clips from the museum exhibit, the the book, uh, and also the documentary. Um, So definitely worth checking that out. Um, And yeah, we just really want to thank you for, for coming on Ethnographic Marginalia. This was fantastic.
2: Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, and I'll look forward to seeing your
1: film. (laughs) Yes, Alex. Alex, your film. We look forward to seeing it. Me
0: too.
1: (laughs) Me too. I mean, I have to add that uh, it's nighttime where I'm at, but I'm so wide awake thanks to this absolutely stimulating conversation. Thank you, Deborah, once again for joining us on the show.